Who else is hearing this music and it comes to mind? Charlie Brown. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy, for mixing it up every now and then, my my walk-up music. Um, Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to Discover Community Church. Welcome to the kickoff of our new series. New series, Jesus the Servant Messiah, study in the Gospel of Mark. So we are going to be in this series for a while. I'll talk more about how we chose it here in just a minute. But, but um, I am so looking forward to seeing what God does through this. So welcome out there online. If you're catching us online in the middle of the night, if you're an insomniac and it's 3 in the morning and you're watching the message, welcome wherever you are. So glad you're here. But special thank you and shout out to my people who are here in-house. You guys, thank you. It means so much to me to look out and see faces looking back and, and interaction. I just, I, I praise God and thank him for you guys every single day. So I don't take a minute of it for granted. I'm happy that you're here. So let's get into it. So again, we're kicking off this new series. Um, you might ask, why the Gospel of Mark? It might be... Something that you've asked. Now, I have, over the past several months, as I prayed about what we were going to do after being in Job and after the, the short study in Luke that we did, I've been praying about where to go after that. Um, some pastors, some churches, denominations are just, they're told by the home office, when you're done with that, you're going to go into this, and here's how it works. My home office is in heaven, and that's where, that's where the Holy Spirit guides me on which direction that we go. And so in my mind, several months ago, I thought it made sense to go into the Gospel of John. And I may have told some of you, I think we might go into the Gospel of John. Well, that's when anytime I start a, a sentence with, I think, that's ripe then to be turned upside down. And so as I prayed about it, the Lord showed me uh, the Gospel of Mark and in fact put such a burden on my heart to teach the gospel of Mark. I couldn't do anything else. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go into the gospel of Mark. And so if you're asking why the gospel of Mark, my answer would be, number one, the Holy Spirit. But secondly, I'm glad you asked because we're going to spend the whole message today talking about why the gospel of Mark. So not a lot of super deep theology in this one. We're going to lay the background and the setting and the time and the place and what was going on and give you some depth of insight, kind of a filter, if you will, or a lens to look at the gospel of Mark through that maybe is not something that has occurred to you before. And it might just change the way that you see the gospel of Mark. So to answer that question, why the gospel of Mark, I have to back up a bit. I have to back up even even before that choice. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we just recently finished a study 10 months in the book of Job. And the book of Job, you might have thought, even if you weren't with us, you might think the book of Job is a lot of back and forth and repetition between Job and his friends, right? Just a lot of that. The opening couple chapters are really great. The ending couple chapters are really great. And in between, it just seems like more repetition back and forth with him and his friends and just a lot of repeating of kind of the same sorts of themes. You might be tempted to think that. There there were things to learn, but it kind of seems a little bit repetitive. (coughs) Then we went from that into Luke 15. Luke 15, we were in that for three weeks. There's three parables, if you remember those. And even those parables, if if you looked at them, would be tempted to think that it's something was lost, something was found, everybody's happy. 
and it's just three retellings of the same thing. Now, hopefully, you're paying attention through that series, and you realize that there's much, much more depth to it than that. But even that can seem kind of repetitive. Then we look at the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Okay, how many Gospels are there of Jesus? I put up five as a, to kind of throw you off, but there's four. <laughs> Very smart. See, I was trying to throw you off, and I couldn't even do it. You guys are super, super smart. But so you look at the Gospels of Jesus, and, and to many people, you might be thinking, okay, it's just a retelling of the same story by four different guys. But here's the thing. There's nothing, there's nothing in all of Scripture, there's nothing in the Word of God that is superfluous. Big word, right? Anybody know what superfluous means? It essentially just means unnecessarily repetitive, more than is necessary, right? There's nothing in the Word of God that is more than is necessary. It is exactly as God ordained it to be. In fact, many, if you've been going to church for any length of time, this scripture will be somewhat familiar. And even if you're not, it might be a little familiar. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is inspired by God. Remember that one? And is beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So, how much scripture is profitable? Okay, you're a little tentative on that. It says all scripture. But then I want to point out in verse 17, so that the man or woman of God, who's the man or woman of God that he's talking about here? That's all of us, everybody, right? The man or woman of God. In the case of Timothy, now 2 Timothy was was written by Paul to Timothy. And in, so in that case, that scripture is actually really directed at Timothy himself. Timothy was kind of Paul's, today we'd call him a fixer. Okay, so he's kind of a protege and assistant. He followed him around. But whenever there was a, a hot spot, a trouble spot in a church somewhere that they had founded, then Paul would send Timothy in there to fix whatever specific particular issue or problem they were going through. And so when Paul writes this to Timothy, it's all Scripture. He's saying, look, you're going to find the answers for what that church, for what you're going through, you're going to find the answers to your questions in Scripture, in all of it. They needed specific instruction for specific problems. Now, we look at the way that Scripture works and the way God knew what we needed to hear, the very same problems and issues that were specific to the church 2,000 years ago that Timothy is trying to fix are the same kind of things that we go through today. So that's how Scripture is alive and active and things written so long ago apply today. And the Gospels are no different. The Gospels, all of them, all four Gospels, were meant primarily to spread the salvation message of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what they're made for. Okay, that's, that's their underlying purpose of all of them. In fact, Mark, in Mark 16, so we're going to be studying the gospel of Mark a little bit later on. Mark 16, 15 and 16 says this, And he said to them, now the he here is Jesus. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who has believed and has been baptized will be saved 
but the one who has not believed will be condemned. Okay, so that's the word. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Sounds very straightforward, and he gives you the reason for preaching the gospel. So then why are there four? If it was God-inspired, wouldn't it just be, here's the story, go tell that story? It seems pretty straightforward, right, if you look at it like that. But like any good teaching, I hope mine falls into this category, any good teaching for the gospel to be the most effective, it needs to be tailored to the audience that's intended to receive it. You wouldn't teach the same way to different audiences and and have it be the most effective. And the gospel is just the same way. So there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those are four gospels. Now, most people know that. Even if you're not a Christian, you might be aware of that. But we take it a step further. Three of them are called the synoptic gospels. Anybody ever heard that term, synoptic gospels? Anybody know what that means? First of all, which three are synoptic and which one isn't? So let's talk about that. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, so those three. So that leaves John as kind of this outlier. It's still a gospel, but it's not one of the synoptics. Okay, what does synoptic mean? Maybe we better look at what synoptic means. They're called synoptic because of their similar perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry and teachings. Okay, similar perspectives. So it's not, it's not that they're all identical, but they tell many of the same parables, many of the same stories, many of the same events. They tell them from different viewpoints, for, from different perspectives, but they're all essentially kind of documenting the same sort of story. Now, the one that's the outlier, John... John is, is different in many ways. John doesn't contain any parables of teaching of Jesus. If you look at it, John was the last of the Gospels written. And so it's different in the other three in that John would have had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Back in those days, like now, if you need a Bible or a devotional or any kind of information, you just go either online or you go down to Lifeway or something and and you can buy a translation. In those days, Christian writings were very few and far between and hard to come by. So if there was somebody like Matthew, like Mark, like Luke, who put out a writing, we call it a gospel now, you would, if you're a Christian, especially a Christian leader, you'd want to like, I need that. I need to find that. I need to read that. And so Mark was like that. So uh, John, I'm sorry, John was like that. So he had access to those first three writings. And so a lot of what he wrote was to fill in some of the gaps in that. Now, it was written last. It was written much later, in fact. So he knew there's some gaps in the message of Jesus that, that I want to fill in. And so he directed his kind of a little different way. That's why his is not one of the synoptics, okay? The word synoptic, in fact, is a Greek word. It means synoptikos, which means just able to be seen together, kind of as a whole. To kind of illustrate that, over 90% of what is in the book of Mark appears in either Matthew or Luke. Over 90% of what's in Mark appears in Matthew or Luke. Okay, In fact, many people believe that Mark, and I believe, was actually the first gospel written. 
Okay, it was written somewhere around 50 AD, so very, in a very short time frame after Jesus' ministry. Now, again, Matthew and Luke probably read and borrowed from Mark. We see, that, we see that kind of back and forth all the time. Now, conversely, if you look at the book of John, over 90% of the book of John is unique to the book of John. Meaning it's not found in the other ones. Okay, so that's, that explains the whole synoptic idea. But no matter where or what their perspective was, each one was written for a distinct purpose to a distinct audience. And that's really the point that I want to get across and what I want you to understand. So if you read the different Gospels, they're, they're different on purpose. They're different in important ways. Many people look at the differences in the Gospels, such as, um, Matthew will say there was one person at the tomb, and Mark says there were three. They look at those as errors. They're not errors at all. In fact, what they are is just a different perspective. I'm going to tr- try to explain that to you here. So first of all, the Gospels, they're not meant to be comprehensive biographies. Okay? They're not meant to document every single move, every single word, every single statement of Jesus. They're not meant to be that. They're also not meant to be press releases of notable events in the life of Jesus. They're not meant to be either one of those things. Each gospel writer had the same ultimate goal, remember, to spread the message of Jesus, that that salvation message of Jesus. That was their goal, letting the reader know the truth about Jesus so that they would accept him and become a disciple. That's their goal in doing this. But each one had their own way to accomplish that goal. And to accomplish that goal, each gospel then is aimed at a certain writer, a certain audience, that is. And the writer then picked phrases and terms and a style of writing and things that would help get that message through to the audience that he was intending. So in Matthew, for example, presents a different aspect of Jesus' character than, say, Mark or John, or Luke does. In Matthew, if we look specifically at the book of Matthew, the, the, the first gospel that's usually in your Bible, some people say it was also the first. Some people say that it was the first gospel, and it may or may not have been. Anyway, it was written within a very short time period between him and Mark. In Matthew, though, Matthew portrays first and foremost, Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies prophecies and promises, right? It's written to a Jewish audience, so he was primarily, first and foremost, writing that gospel to a Jewish audience. And by doing that, the first thing he had to do is establish the lineage of Jesus. That's the first thing he had to do. In fact, if you look at the gospel of Mark or, or of Matthew and you read it, Matthew 1.1 reads like this, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, written purposely that way and intentionally that way. So the Jewish audience would have said, those are the patriarchs. Those are the the fathers. And okay, so you're establishing that Jesus is in that lineage. Okay, he's, he's a guy we should listen to. He had to establish that first and foremost. And Luke is a little bit different. Luke portrays Jesus as the perfect Man, the perfect human, okay? The son of Adam, sent to bring salvation to all people and nations, not just the Jews, but to all peoples and all nations. And he's writing this to this 
educated, more educated, primarily Gentile, meaning not Jewish, audience. And his goal is to really, and he states this, just to document the life and the teachings of Jesus as accurately as he can. Very analytical, very straightforward thinking, right? So Luke 1.4 says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Right down to the genealogy. And he traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam. So if you read Luke 3, uh, later, 23 to 38, I think it is, um, it traces the, the genealogy all the way back to Adam, establishing that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, in the Gospel of John, John wants to establish that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom. Jesus will be the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. And it's written to a mixed audience of believers, okay? All still believers, but some Jews, some Gentiles. But his point is this. In John's own words, John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's exactly why then John was written. Now, let's go to Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark portrays Jesus primarily as the suffering servant Messiah, okay? The servant Messiah sent as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's writing that to an audience in Rome. So he's writing it primarily to Roman converts to Christianity, okay? So some of them, there may be an occasional smattering of of Jews who are in there who have converted, but mostly they're probably pagans who have converted to Christianity, and so he's writing that. Now this, <clears throat> excuse me, this gospel of Jesus, in fact, even just the thought of one God would have been quite a contrast for them. Think about it. They would have been very well, um, very well acquainted with the whole idea of Greek and Roman gods, this polytheistic. You've got Zeus, you've got Apollo and Athena and all the myriad of Roman gods most of which live for the entertainment of smiting you with a lightning bolt, this would have been quite a change. So not only are there not dozens or who knows how many gods, there is one God, and that God is here to serve. That would probably blow their minds. Now, they don't know anything, this group, this group of of Roman converts, they knew nothing, if very little, maybe, of, Ro- of uh, Jewish law, Jewish history, Hebrew history, the patriarchs, the laws, the Pharisees. These kind of things would have meant little or nothing to them. In fact, you only see one time in the whole book of Mark where he even mentions Sadducees at all. So it's not a thing because the audience would not have connected with that. They would have... I don't know why we care about what all this law is. So Mark then focuses on the fact that Jesus is the servant Messiah. And that was intentional based on what they were going through. I'll talk about that in a minute. But when you take the four Gospels together, all these different aspects of Jesus' character, all these different aspects of Jesus' life, you put them together and read it together, then gives us the most complete picture that we can possibly have of Jesus and his character and his ministry. So it's not just like, well, I'm not a Jew, so I'm not going to read Matthew. I'm not a pagan, so I'm not going to read Mark. 
you need to read them all to get a complete picture of who Jesus is. That's why there are four. He was God from all eternity who came down to earth as the perfect man. He was the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, the one who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. That's who Jesus Christ is, and you only get that picture when you read all the Gospels together. Let's look specifically then at the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, written to believers in Rome, who at the point, now we're gonna, I'm trying to take you back to, to imagining you're one of those early Christian converts in Rome. And you're thinking, okay, I've, I've, I've heard the news of Jesus through different missionaries have come in. I've heard this. I have made the decision. I am a follower of Christ. But, boy, does it suck around here. There's all kinds of stuff going on in my life. And being a convert and a follower of Jesus has not made my life any better right now. In fact, if anything, it's made it way worse. Way worse in ways that we can't even wrap our minds around. They're seeing no tangible benefit from their conversion to faith in Jesus. They're seeing none of this. So they've heard of the resurrection. They've been taught of the resurrection. But they had no idea how that applied to their life. Had no idea how this was supposed to help them in what they were going through right then. They'd heard of Jesus, but had never met him. They had no idea what their future held next day, much less next year and going forward. Things were so uncertain. Namely, how could they stand up to the tyrants of the day? Some of the tyrants were political leaders, religious leaders. There were, everywhere you turned seemed to be that there was somebody willing to persecute you and put you down for being a follower of Jesus. And they had a choice. They could either fear persecution by the government or, or any of the leaders that were in charge for holding on to their beliefs, or they could set aside, hide their beliefs, okay? Maybe even give up their belief and their faith in Jesus altogether because by doing that, they would avoid being singled out and they would avoid many of the persecutions that were coming their way. So they had that choice or they could hold on. They could choose to hold on to their faith in a time of terrible trial. I'll talk to you more specifically about the trials they were going through at the time here in a minute, but that's the choice that they find themselves at. That's why this gospel was written to them. They are suffering. They are going through things. They are seeing no benefit for being a follower of Jesus, and Mark is saying, wait, let me, let me take the gospel, this story of Jesus, and pare it down to terms you can understand, terms you can connect with, and in a way that will help you in your life and help you stand firm in your trust and your faith in Jesus. So, to answer the question, why the gospel of Mark? What I just said. The things that they were going through there, we go through here. Now, the level of persecution we go through today is nowhere near. It's not even in the same ballpark. But we do get faced with this choice every day. Am I open about my faith? Do I stick to my faith, in, especially in, in light of the, the world around us that wants to give me a hard time, that wants to, to not give me favor, that wants to actually make my life more difficult for being a follower of Jesus? Do I stick to that? 
Or do I just hide my faith and pretend like it doesn't exist? What do I do? That's why we're going to study the gospel of Mark. And before we get into it then, so let's go, let's go back even further. Let's talk about who Mark is. Let's talk about Mark. Let's talk about um, what was going on in his life and in his world at the time. That'll give you, I think, a good context in what we're talking about as we go through this series. So first of all, who is Mark? Mark, here's a picture of Mark. Unretouched photograph, they would say. No. Clearly had not heard of a barber or uh, anything like that, but that is a painting uh, based on what they believe that Mark looked like. Now, Mark's birthplace was actually in Libya. So he wasn't born in Jerusalem or anything like that. He was born in Libya in a, in a region that you hear called Cyrene. You hear of Simon the Cyrene who helped Jesus carry his cross. Okay, it was from this region. It's up in Libya. And Mark was born there about 10 AD or so. You don't know exactly, but about 10 AD or so. His full name, by the way, is John Mark. That's tell you how we know that, but he's John Mark. And in fact, in his birthplace in Libya, when he was born, his name would have been, he would have been called Johannan Marcus. Okay, that's what he was known by when he was born. And at some time when he was young, he and his family moved to Jerusalem. Okay, moved to Jerusalem. We don't hear anything about his dad, his earthly dad, but we do hear about his mom. It's called the son of Mary. Okay, so Mary was his mother. Now, not that Mary. In fact, we don't know for sure which Mary, but there are a lot of Marys, and this is how I know that Scripture is true, because if you were setting out to write a book about all these people, you would not have 14 women named Mary. You would not have 17 Johns, 13 Marks, and Simon Peter, and John Mark, and you wouldn't have any of those. And yet, it's God-inspired. And that's just one of the little things that helps me know for sure that it wasn't man-made. But Mary, let's go back to Mary. We don't know which one for sure. Not Mary Magdalene, not Jesus' mother, possibly Barnabas' mother. If you're familiar at all, Barnabas went on some missionary trips with, with Paul, quite a figure in, in Scripture. So possibly Barnabas' mother. We don't know for sure. We do know that she was pretty well-to-do. She lived in Jerusalem, right there inside the walls, in the city, and was pretty well-to-do. In fact, here is a, here's a picture that we have. It's a, it's a sketch that somebody did of the interior of Mary's home. Okay, now this, I'm sure this isn't all that we're seeing. What this is, is actually a representation of what you've heard the upper room mentioned, the upper room where Jesus and his disciples gathered for the Last Supper and to, to celebrate Passover was in the upper room. And many people believe that this is where that was. It was an actual room in Mary's house. So we do know that she was pretty well-to-do. In fact, Acts 12.12 says this. Now, to set Acts 12.12 up, we've got the scripture right there. Peter was imprisoned at some point and was broken out of jail in the middle of the night by an angel. If you remember that story, if not, you can go back, check out Acts 12, 12. It's such a cool story. He was broken out of jail by an angel. He finds himself standing outside of the jail, and that's where we pick up this. And when he realized this, meaning, I guess I'm out of jail now, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. All kinds of information we're gathering right there. Went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together, 
and we're praying. Okay, so again, tradition states that 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 upper room, that's where this home was, where the disciples met. We do know that John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. Okay, we hear about Barnabas quite a bit. He accompanied him on missions. Again, I'll talk more about that here in just a minute. Fun fact, though, I don't know how fun it is, but it's a fact. Most scholars believe that Mark, John Mark, never met Jesus. Most scholars believe that. And yet here he is writing a gospel. So how did he come to that? That's what we need to know. So we're going to answer these questions. I believe, though, and in fact some scholars also agree with me, that John Mark may have met Jesus. And here's how I think that, or here's why I think that. If we go back to the moment where Jesus was arrested in the garden, Garden of Gethsemane, the guards come and they come to arrest him, and there's this whole scene that goes on right there, quite a commotion going on right there. Mark, John Mark, documents this in his gospel. Now, he's, he's documenting what has happened, and he talks about what's after, but right in the middle, he has these two verses that look like they're out of place. Mark 14, 51, 52, it's up here. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And then it just goes on. Like, nothing to see here. He's just documenting that. I believe that that's Mark actually himself saying, I was there. The reason he would say it like that is because persecution was still happening. And if you were tagged as one of the original who was there with Jesus, you were gonna be, somebody was going to be after you. So if you had any hope of kind of laying low and staying off the radar at all, you wouldn't come out and say, yeah, that was me. I was there when that happened. And in fact, they grabbed me and I escaped. You'd immediately find yourself in jail. So I think that's Mark's little hint that I was there at that time. He would have been somewhere between 10 and 15 years old at the time. Now think about this. If the disciples were meeting in the upper room or meeting in the house of Mary, then when they left, when they left the house to go to the garden, a young John Mark staying at his mom's house would have seen all these people, would have seen them go knowing they're going to the garden. And then at some point, this isn't in Scripture, by the way. This is just my research and just based on things that I'm, that I'm picking up here. He would have seen, okay, look at this. There's the, there's the high priest and all the guards, and they're heading towards the garden. I need to go see what's going on. So he pops up out of bed, wraps a sheet around himself, and runs out to follow them to see what all the commotion is and what's happening. Then he finds himself standing in the garden and at this point, they seize him because he's known he's the son of Mary, the home at which these guys all hang out, but he escapes. So that's just a fun little thing to look at. Some of these things that as we study Scripture can kind of come to light. We do know, we don't know for sure that that was John Mark. I believe that it might have been, but we do know that his first real ministry his first real ministry experience came when his cousin Barnabas gave him a chance to accompany him and Paul on their first missionary journey. Remember, Paul and Barnabas traveled around doing all kinds of great missionary work. And here's what it looked like, Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul, he was called Saul at that point, not Paul, 
returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Just to make sure you get the right John, who was also called. <clears throat> we see on that journey, so Barnabas and Saul came back having gathered having gathered tithe and supplies and things like that from the churches in the outlying areas, bringing them back to Jerusalem. And then they decide that they're going to head out. And when they head out again on the road, they take Mark with him. And it reads like this. Uh, Okay, I'm sorry. I already read it to you. Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So where do they go? They leave there. They leave Jerusalem on this trip. John Mark is still very young. He might not even be 15 yet. Who knows? Somewhere 10 to 15. But he gets to go along with these two rock stars. This is my cousin, Barnabas, who knows Paul. And we're going on this missionary trip, and this is going to be awesome. He's kind of like their roadie. He goes along with them. And Scripture said he was their helper. He carried their gear. He did things for them. And so he was kind of a helper, and he had to be super excited about it. When they set out, the first thing they do, Acts 13, 13, now Paul and his companions put out to sea. Wait, let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm so excited to tell this story. I love this part of this story. So hear me, that don't let my failings to tell it right blow this for you. His first ministry was with when Barnabas and Paul, Saul, asked him to come along with them. And it reads like this. This is Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, where did they go? The first place they went was to Antioch. Antioch was north of, of Israel, north of Jerusalem, and that's where, that was basically Paul's hometown, right? That's where Paul's from. So you can picture these three guys, they're on the road, you got a young John Mark, and he's like, okay, the first place we come is Antioch, Paul's hometown, basically, and so we're going to visit where he grew up, we're going to visit his home, his school, it's going to be, as missionary trips go, that's going to be a pretty low-key one, right? Kind of friendly territory. Then the next place they go, they get on a boat. So now we're really into the meat of our trip. We're getting on a boat and we're going somewhere. And they go across the sea and they go to Cyprus. Cyprus happens to be the home of Barnabas. So again, he's probably, he's like, this is pretty cool. I'm seeing where Barnabas is from. Barnabas knows his way around. He knows all the best restaurants to eat at. and We're we're doing all this. Now, this is where they are until... They get their first real opposition. You can read Acts 13 if you want to see how that goes. But they start getting a little pushback from some of the locals, and it's not quite as easy as it was at first. It's not terrible, but it is some pushback. It's not just all fun and games anymore at this point. And so Mark, young Mark, his response to, the, to hitting this first kind of roadblock in this mission trip is this, Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. Okay, that's on the coast. They travel across the sea, across the Mediterranean, and they come to the coast of Asia Minor, which is where they are. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It doesn't really say why. There's no, there's no real indication of why it happened. It might have been he was sick. It might have been like, hey, my mom, I hear my mom calling me. I got to go. It could have been any of that, but what he does is he turns tail and goes home. And we do know that Paul wasn't real thrilled with that. 
Here's their helper, the guy that you, Barnabas, talked me into bringing this kid along. And sure, he's been a helpful pack mule, but now he's gone. And he just ran out on us. Paul is not at all happy about this. In fact, we see later on Paul's second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance. Some of you might remember this scripture. I'll read it to you, Acts 15, 36 to 39. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city in which we had proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul was of the opinion that they should not take along with them this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now it turned into such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So it was such, whatever he did did not sit well with Paul. It was such, a, such an abandonment of, his, of their mission that Paul said, I'm not, we're not taking this kid again. He bailed on us last time. And it was such a disagreement that Barnabas, being his cousin, said, okay, all right, Mark, you come with me. We'll go do this. Paul, you go on and do your thing. We do know that at some point Paul and John Mark reconciled, that there was a reconciliation somehow because, again, and later in Scripture, we see that he traveled with Paul and did some more things around. In fact, one of which is he went to Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which is very nearby where his ancestral home was, and founded a church there, a church in Alexandria. Colossians 4.10 says this, Aristarchus, this is Paul writing, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So at that point, they have reconciled to the point of saying, if he comes and visits you, be sure and welcome him. He's a good kid. 2 Timothy 4.11 also says, and this is Paul writing from prison, only Luke is with me. Take along Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. So he's calling John Mark basically a useful animal at that point. He's useful. So they did reconcile at some point despite their kind of rocky start to begin with. Now, ultimately, Mark died a martyr's death at about April 25th in 68 AD, died in Alexandria right outside of the church he founded. He died a martyr's death being drugged behind a horse for his beliefs. So, that's a little bit of his background. So, going back to Mark, having found out that being a missionary might not be his primary spiritual gift, God was still able to redeem this. Most people, if you had the chance of a lifetime to go out with Paul and do this mission trip with your cousin and go spread the gospel of Jesus, you've been commissioned to do this to all the nations, and you go out and you get two stops into it and go, I'm going home. Most people would be written off at that point. And you'd be tempted to do that, just write him off and go, well, he failed at that. Maybe he can become a, a plumber or something. God redeems this. And we fact and see, we, we, we see when Paul, when they split ways, Mark comes back home. And what he does is he works with his friend Peter. His friend, also known as Simon Peter, works with his friend Peter as his personal scribe, kind of an aide, again, kind of an assistant, 
more of a, on an intern kind of a level, follows him all the way to Rome and collaborates with him actually in writing the Gospel of Mark. A lot of scholars, in fact, call kind of a subtitle to the Gospel of Mark. They call it Peter's Memoirs because Peter was eyewitness to those things that Jesus did, but Mark was not. In fact, uh, later on, one of the early church fathers, I mean, very, very shortly after he wrote this, the bishop, Bishop Papias of Heropolis, who lived 30 to 130 AD, so right about that time, he repeated and kind of restated what the, what the belief was of those early church fathers. And he said it like this. One of the, and he says, and the elder used to say this. So it's something he heard. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord nor had followed him, but later on followed Peter, who used to give teaching as, nece- as necessity demanded. So, so it was well known at that time that, that Mark didn't meet the Lord, didn't hear the Lord, at least as far as they knew still. Mark still hadn't announced like, hey, that was me in the, in the bed sheet. Maybe he was embarrassed, like, yeah, that was me, that kook that ran off naked. We don't know. But Mark wrote this gospel during an especially trying time for Christians in Rome. So let's set the scene for this now. In Rome... They had just heard the the news of the resurrection of Jesus. They had just started to hear the gospel of Jesus. But again, they hadn't met him, hadn't really had a lot in the way of teaching, and they were living in some hard times. What was going on at that time in Rome? The emperor Nero was going on in Rome at that time. If you know anything about your Roman history, Nero was a bad dude. Okay, Nero... Nero was one in a long string of bad dudes, but he seemed to like revel in taking persecution of Christians to another level. Christianity was blowing up at that time. It was spreading all over the world. The word of of Christ was spreading and growing throughout the land, and Nero was not putting up with that. He's like, this is challenging my authority. I cannot and will not have that. So when Nero took the throne, he started ramping up this persecution of Christians. I mean, in a way that we could never even understand today. By the way, 14 of the New Testament's 27 books were written during this time of Nero's reign. So written during these terrible times to be a Christian. Now, Nero, if you asked him, we know the stories about Nero fiddling while Rome burning, and he he is alleged that he set Rome on fire so that he could blame it on the Christians. But he would have considered himself what we'd call today a Renaissance man. I, I sing, I write poetry, I play instruments. I'm a pretty cool dude, right? Except the Renaissance was still 1,400 years away, but he was an early adopter. <clears throat> but it was a time of terrible, brutal persecution for, cru- for Christians. Crucifixion, for one... That was a given if you were a Christian and you got caught, you would probably be crucified. But he was even more creative than that. One of the things he would do is he would take animal skins and he would strap them or wrap them around a Christian, stake a Christian out in the forest where animals could get to him, and then let the animals eat the Christian alive. 
happened all the time. Burning at the stake. Burning at the stake was so common that it was told that they actually lit the streets of Rome at night with the bodies of burning Christians. Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, okay, he, he's a historian. He's not somebody just telling a story. His job, very serious job, was to document the things that happened, especially with the royalty and with the emperors. Tacitus records that Nero would use Christians as human torches to light his evening garden parties. This is the setting of the Gospel of Mark. We think that we go through persecution today in the church. It is nothing compared to what they went through. And Mark is writing this gospel to a group of people who are going, tell me again why we're doing this. Tell me again why we're following Jesus Christ when that thing is likely to get us killed in a horrible way or our relatives or our family, our sons and daughters are being rounded up and killed all because we're standing for this person that we've never met. How and why are we doing this? This is why Mark writes this gospel. And so there's no references to Pharisees. There's no references to, to Abraham or the forefathers or the Exodus. There's no mention of any of those sorts of things. What it is, is this is Jesus Christ, the servant Messiah who gave everything for you. He gave it all, Son of God, willingly for you. And so his gospel is ultimately a promise that Jesus is the Messiah and is the Son of God and that his death and resurrection not only paid the penalty for your sins, rescuing you from death, but just as importantly, and maybe more importantly to the audience at the time, achieved victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's what they needed at the time, this joyful assurance. And that was a call to all believers. It was then and it is now for faith in Christ and sacrificial faith in Christ, meaning it will cost you something to be a follower of Christ. If all you're looking for is things to get easy and things to get better as your reward for being a follower of Christ, you're not going to get that. It is sacrificial, cross-bearing discipleship. And that's what Paul, when Paul's writing to the same audience, when Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, Paul describes it as true spiritual worship. He says this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. When he says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, he means, let them take it. If they come and they want your body, let them take it. Because that is holy worship to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, that's why we're going to study the Gospel of Mark, because today, more than any day in my lifetime, but not certainly more than any day in history, we have needed the assurance that no matter what we go through, Jesus has paid the price and has already won that victory for us. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to reconcile us to you. Give us victory over sin. Give us victory over the schemes of the enemy so that we don't have to fear what comes our way. We can stand in the face of fear and know that no matter what happens to me in the physical world, my inheritance is so much beyond that. I have no reason to fear what man can do to me. But I have reason to rejoice in what Jesus Christ has won for me. Father, we thank you. We thank you and we look forward to hearing as you reveal more and more of your heart to us through the study of Mark. I thank you for, I thank you for Mark who could have been thrown on the trash heap, relegated to a failure, but you used him and you redeemed him to write a gospel that gives life to people throughout centuries and is giving life to us right now. Nothing is beyond redemption with you. I thank you that you use all things for the good of those who are called, and I thank you that we are all called. Nothing is extra. Nothing is beyond what is necessary. Father, we are here because you need us to be here. Father, let us live our lives in a joyful reflection of who you are and who we are to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to uh, we're going to take communion right now. If you need prayer, we have we have prayer team here. Look for somebody; they'll be in the back with a lanyard that says "prayer." If you need prayer for any reason, if you're out there online watching us, you can just put a comment in the chat boards, and we will have a pastor contact you or pray for you. We have the crosses; you can pin prayer requests to the crosses, and we'll do that. But let's take advantage of that time as we move around and take communion. If you say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we invite you to take communion with us. If you're at home, take whatever you have, supplies, and let's celebrate Jesus Christ right now. If you're here in-house, the way we do it is at the crosses, we have self-serve stations. You can do, it's juice there, and you have bread or crackers, and you can dip it in the juice. Up front here, we have wine and bread and crackers, and so you can just form a line, and Gabe and I would love to serve you would be our honor to do that. But let's do that as we listen to this worship and as we celebrate who Jesus Christ is. Let's just try and remember that in the face of everything that comes our way, the entirety of gospel of the gospel of Jesus was written so that we would know him and so that we would understand our authority and our place in the kingdom and that nothing that comes against us will have its way in defeating what Jesus has already won. Amen? Thank you, church.